Let's turn in God's Word together to our Old Testament reading in Hosea chapter 2. I think we read this not too long ago um, in our look at, in 1 Corinthians. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. I wanted to read it to you again this morning. Um, you'll find it on page 1399 if you're using one of the Bibles on the cart back there. And um, if anybody needs a Bible, please make use of those. We, it's very helpful to have God's Word before you as we are reading and I'm preaching. So, read to you the section of Hosea 14 uh, through 20 where the prophet, the Lord through the prophet Hosea has been uh, making known God's displeasure uh, about the fact that his, his people have turned to idolatry and he calls that harlotry or whoredom. And when the Lord does that, he's presenting himself to his people as the lover of his people. He is the lover of his people. He is the beloved. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, in turn, views us as his beloved. Well, listen to what the Lord says here in verse 14 through 20 in chapter 2 of Hosea about um, his unfaithful bride. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. How beautiful. Our sermon passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but I'd like to, I just decided this morning to stop off in John chapter 6 real quick, if we could, take the time to read this to you just now, um, I'm going to be referring to it in the sermon, John 6 uh, verses 51 through 63, a section of Jesus' conversation with the uh, the Jews and, the, and then his disciples, the Jews were quarreling with him because um, he says here, after he feeds the 5,000 um, the next day, uh, he, that he is the bread that came down from heaven. And that the food, the bread that he gives is his flesh. And the Jews quarreled among themselves in verse 52, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, here what Jesus says in verses uh, 53 through 63. This is God's word. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, 
so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. We'll end there. I'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll look again. We looked at this passage last week, 14 through 22. I'd just like to come back around and look at verses um, 16 and 17. Because as I told you last week, um, Paul here assumes, he says something about the Lord's Supper, about the bread and the wine. He says something about here that assumes that they have a certain understanding of the Lord's Supper. And I want to make sure that we, we get that from this passage, what it is. Um, and increase our understanding of what the Lord's Supper is, what Jesus has done by giving it to us. So let's meditate on these verses together. I'm just going to read verses uh, 16 and 17 from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is God's word, where the apostle says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, with joy and anticipation, we come to your word just now. Uh, We ask that you would bless us, Father. We ask that you would open up to us, uh, to open our eyes to see and open up from your word just how glorious the grace of God in Jesus Christ is, that we would come from our meditation upon your word just now, we would come away with it, with joy in our hearts, with a deep sense of gratitude, and with more zealous love for our Savior Jesus Christ and the things that he has done for us. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. My throat is a little sore. I'm going to take a, a drink. Would somebody be able to, Silas, would you be able to get me some more water? I can tell I'm going to need it. I'm going through it rather rapidly. Thank you. I'd like to ask you guys a, a question, a serious question. Um, is it possible that you have a secular view of spirituality? A secular view of spirituality. And I've had a battle against, in my own heart and mind, what I have come to realize are secular views about spirituality. And it almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? How can you have a secular view of spirituality? Well, by secular, first of all, let me explain what I mean. I mean a view of the world that believes only what we can see, taste, touch, smell, and hear. Only those kinds of things are real. Only things that we perceive with our five senses. That's what secular people believe. Secularism is the worldview that dominates our culture based on that idea. And this secularism not only dominates our culture, it has come into the church in 
influencing us. Um, and so it even influences our understanding of spiritual things. And one of the main ways that secular thought can be seen influencing us as Christians um, is in our view of spirituality and the all-too-common belief that we harbor in our minds. You know, and this is it. We, we believe in God. We, we believe He can be present. But since we can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear Him, we can't be certain that He's there. And maybe we're tempted to believe that the secular people are right. And maybe the best thing that we can do then is equate God's presence with our feelings about God. And this is what we do. Because no one can argue against my feelings after all. Right? My feelings are are real to me. At least there's something real then about God as I feel something about him. So then, when does God show up for you? Well, then, with this kind of thinking, he shows up when something inspires me to think of him. Or he shows up when something makes me feel happy or comforted about him. However it might happen for you, God is there only when you feel like it. Do we do that? This is a common view of spirituality that, that makes... The, the church very individualistic and it has become that way in a lot of senses because and why it makes sense because you might feel closer to God in the mountains why I might feel closer to God on the ocean by the ocean right you might feel that God shows up for you with, with one kind of music whereas I might think that God shows up with another kind of music now, one person might feel closer to God staying at home and reading their Bible, while another person might feel closer to God when by going to church and hearing a sermon. And if what I'm describing to you sounds a bit like spiritual relativism, that's because it is. This is what happens when a secular view of spirituality takes hold of our minds and we begin to equate God with our feelings. And the remedy for this, brothers and sisters, is found in embracing Jesus Christ in the way and in the place that he told us that he actually makes his presence known. Do you believe he makes his presence known? He makes his presence known to his people. He's with us. And that is why I wanted to return to this passage in 1 Corinthians for a second look. I've come to believe that once we truly understand the Lord's Supper, in particular this morning, when we truly understand the Lord's Supper, it's like a spiritual sauna. You go go into a sauna, they say, to sweat out all of the impurities. The Lord's Supper, if we truly understand, it's like a spiritual sauna by which we will sweat out the impurities of secularism and individualism that run through our veins. And here's the point I want to draw out of this passage for us this morning. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus sits down with us. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus sits down with us and he gives us his body as food and he gives us his blood as drink to strengthen our union with him and with his church. Now look, look with me at verse 16. 
By asking two questions here, Paul appeals to what these Christians know about the bread and the wine shared in the Lord's Supper. He knows they know something about it. And so he he asks a question, and kids, look at it. What does Paul say is happening in the Lord's Supper? Look Look at verse 16. He says the cup of blessing is the communion of the blood of Christ. He says the bread that we break, it is the communion of the body of Christ. Paul is saying here that in the bread and the wine, Christians have communion with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? The Greek word translated communion, um, that's the new, how the New King James translates it. Uh, it's the word koinonia. Right? And maybe you're familiar with that word. Some translate, versions translate it fellowship. The idea behind the word koinonia is the activity of people sharing something that they have in common. People sharing something that they have in common. That's what this communion is. That's what this fellowship is. And what is being shared in the Lord's Supper, you guys? What is being shared in the Lord's Supper? What does Paul say? What's the communion? What's the, what are we sharing? We're sharing the body and blood of Christ. And don't think that Paul is merely talking about believers now sharing bread and wine as mere symbols that remind us that Jesus gave his life for us. Paul is saying, first of all, that in the supper, Jesus shares his body and his blood with us. It is, first of all, a communion or fellowship with Jesus, who is present. Now, we know Paul is saying this because Paul brings these things up about the Lord's Supper here in order to tell these Christians not to eat meat offered to idols. And why did he not want them to eat meat offered to idols? What did he say? Why doesn't he want them to do that? As he argues here, he says, when you sit down to a table to eat food offered to idols, you sit down at a table with demons. Demons were present in those temples where meat was offered to idols. And look at verse 20. Paul doesn't want Christians to have koinonia with demons. Why? Because our koinonia is with Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ is, he is no less present at his table than the demons are at their table. You might be tempted to think, you know, we might believe you could play with a Ouija board, right? And if people play with Ouija boards, they, play, they, they involve themselves in witchcraft or something like that. As Christians, we have no problem thinking, well, they're getting themselves mixed up with demons. They're encountering demons. They're coming under the influence of demons. Don't do that. Don't open yourself up to the devil like that. But then we think about the Lord's Supper. We think about what takes place here. And we don't think about the presence of our Lord or the Lord being just as present here as he is, as demons are in all of those other places where they have old influence. And again, kids, what does Jesus share with us at his table? He's present to share not bread and wine, but his body and blood. Now you should be thinking of John chapter 6. 
by now, right? You're thinking of John 6? I'll put a section of it back up on the screen for you. And there's no reason to explain Jesus' words away here. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and the bread which I shall give is my flesh. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And then John reports that many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you, you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Now, Jesus said, we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life from him. But so it is, as he is in this account, encounter with disciples here, we see that our natural, fleshly, secular minds can't make sense of it. We don't understand it. But Jesus said what he, what he meant. Jesus said what he meant, and what he said was spiritual. That is, it is only experienced by the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember back in John 3, when Jesus encountered Nicodemus, and he says, unless you were born by the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, the work and the words that Jesus is speaking here, they, they are spiritual. In other words, they, they are known by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it is, if you judge the preaching of the word, if you judge the Lord's Supper with your natural, secular mind, it, it may make you feel good. It may make you feel bad. It may, it may make you feel indifferent. But your natural, secular mind will not recognize the presence of Jesus Christ coming to you to speak to you and to feed you on his body and blood. And it would seem to, the word of God seemed to indicate here, that's the very thing that Jesus is coming to do. Now, one of the, the longest running debates in church history has been about what Jesus meant at the Last Supper with his disciples. What did Jesus mean when he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body. What did Jesus mean by that? I, I saw a recent video by uh, Francis Chan. Um, if you're not familiar with him, he's a pastor. Um, and in this video, he's telling his church that until recently, he didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of the church's history, everyone, he stressed the word, everyone saw the bread and wine as the literal body and blood of Christ. Physically in the bread and the wine, being consumed. That's the Roman Catholic view, right? And Chan said that he didn't know that it wasn't until the Reformation in the 16th century that anyone ever said that the bread and the wine were only symbols of Jesus' body and blood, which is today the dominant Protestant view, right? They're just symbols. 
They remind us of his body and blood. And the reason I bring up Francis Chan is, is because, number one, he's influential, very influential. And number two, he's not correct about the history. And worse than that, by saying these things, he may very well end up unintentionally so leading people into the Roman Catholic Church. It is false that for the first 1,500 years of the church's history that everyone saw the bread and wine as the literal, physical body and blood of Christ. That view actually was not formally adopted by the church until the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. And prior to that, there were centuries and centuries of debate about what Jesus meant about saying, this is my body. Uh, there were two men, Retramnus and Radbertus, who famously debated about it in the ninth century. And you can read their books. The Roman Catholic Church does teach today that when the priest breaks the bread and says the words, this is my body, the bread and the wine are turned into the literal, physical body and blood of Christ, even though they continue to have the physical properties of bread and wine. At the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther rejected that view. And he offered another explanation. And you, maybe you're familiar with Martin Luther, his explanation, in which he, he says, when Jesus said, this is my body, that, that he was indicating that he is physically present in the bread and the wine. And the way Luther argued this, he said, is that Jesus' divine nature communicates to his human nature the divine property of omnipresence. So that what that means is that Jesus' human physical body was given the ability, and has it today, to be present everywhere as God does in his, as a spirit. So the bread and the wine are still, to Luther, bread and wine, but Jesus' body is there, physically present. And the language that he uses, it is in, with, and under, and alongside of the bread and wine. So that when we eat the bread and the wine, we're eating bread and wine, but there is the body and the blood. Physically, there. You're chewing the body and blood of Christ. Well, the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, um, he argued with Luther about this. And, uh, and they, they had a meeting, and this meeting was called the Marburg Colloquy, 1529. And they, they got together because they were trying to forge a union of all of the, the churches that were leaving the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformed churches. They were trying to form this union. And they had 14 points of doctrine that they discussed at the colloquy that they agreed on every single one of them, but it, they could not come together. What kept them apart was this question about the Lord's Supper and what Jesus meant when he said, This is my body. And Zwingli argued that when Jesus said that, he was only saying that when we eat and drink the bread and the wine, we are to remember his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. The, the bread and the wine are only a reminder of his death. Well, in 1540, little history lesson here, in 1540, shortly after John Calvin became the leader of the Reformed churches in the city of Geneva in Switzerland, he published this little pamphlet, this little book, that is called A Short Treatise on the Supper of Our Lord. Still published today. You can order it and buy, you can get it and read it. Well, when Calvin wrote that, by that time Zwingli was dead. Zwingli was dead 
but Luther got a hold of it and read it. And when Luther read Calvin's treatise on the Lord's Supper, he wrote a letter to a friend in which he said this about Calvin. He said, certainly a learned and pious man he is. And I might well have entrusted the whole affair about the Lord's Supper to him from the beginning. And in that letter, he suggests that if Calvin had been there at the Marburg Colloquy in 1529, he was only 20 years old at the time, if Calvin had been there, he would have brought Luther and Zimingley together and all of the Reformed churches would have been one. But he wasn't there. And what did Calvin say? What is the word of God saying? That's what we're, that's what we're trying to get at. But Calvin remembered Jesus' words in John 6, 63. When, he told, when Jesus told his disciples that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life, Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. He said, my words are spirit and my words are life. And Calvin understood by this that when Jesus said that we must eat his, blood, uh, eat his body and drink his blood to have life, he was saying that we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Spirit that makes Jesus Christ present to us and real to us including his body. So Christ's physical body is still in heaven. His physical body is still at the right hand of the Father, but from there, by his Spirit, he feeds our souls on his flesh and blood in the same way that the bread and the wine keep and sustain physical life. Now listen to the way Calvin explains Jesus and Paul's meaning. In the, in the passage that we've read from John in 1 Corinthians, this is the way Calvin uh, gets at what Jesus is saying in John 6. He says, even though it seems... Actually, I think I have this for you, so you can read along with me. Even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh, separated from us by such great distance, penetrates to us, so that it becomes our food, Let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above our senses and how foolish it is to wish to measure his immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend? Let faith conceive that the Spirit truly unites things separated by space. And Calvin's point here is that when Jesus says that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life, when Paul says that in the bread and the wine, Christ shares with us his body and blood, what he's saying is that we don't need to understand it so much as we need to believe it and experience it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anybody here quite figured out the Trinity and understood it? But yet we believe it and experience it and take great comfort in it. And we know it is true. We know it is real that God is triune. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that Christians are members of his body. This is Ephesians 5. Paul says Christians are members of Christ's body. He says that we are his flesh and his bones. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, 
that a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And you notice there that Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 to prove that Christians, that believers, are one flesh with Jesus Christ. But I want you to also notice that Paul doesn't even try to explain how that can be true. Instead, he says, this is a great mystery. I'm speaking about Christ and the church. In other words, I think Calvin, again, it was right to conclude that the Apostle Paul declares that our communion with Christ's flesh and blood, that it is so real, that it is so great, that he prefers to marvel at it rather than to explain it. And so must we. So must we. This is what we are to do, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we take the bread and the wine as, yes, symbols of his body and blood, is that we then remind ourselves that these symbols were appointed by our Lord to persuade us of the truth that his body and his blood are present and that they are truly given to us that he's truly given them to us. Think about it. For why would the Lord put in our hands the symbol of his body and blood except that he truly aims to share it with us so that we can participate in it? Just as Paul says. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus sits with us to nourish us, to nourish our souls by giving us his body and his blood to eat Not with our mouths, but with our souls. In the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith. And just as food and drink enter our bodies and become a part of us for health and strength and joy, in the same way Jesus enters us, he fills us and he gives us life. He gives us his health, he gives us his strength, he gives us his joy. He shares with us all that he is and all that he has done so that we can come to experience what Paul said of himself in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. Christ must live in us. He must be in us. He must dwell in us. We must take him into us. And he does this by drawing near to us, by sitting with us at the Lord's Supper, giving us his body and blood to tell us that we are now one flesh with him. And now all that belongs to him belongs to us. He holds nothing back. He shares it all. He's taken our sin to share with us his righteousness. He's taken our curse to share with us his blessedness. He has taken our debt to share with us his riches. He's taken our shame to share with us his honor, his dignity, and his glory. And he's done all of that with the greatest love and devotion imaginable. Because we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And certainly the Lord's Supper, we can see, 
It's, it, it must be a foretaste, right? It, it has to be a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we can read about in Revelation chapter 19, 9, that, that we will enter into when Christ returns. This is a foretaste. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that. And if that's true, then I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination at all to think of it as a rehearsal dinner. The Lord's Supper is a, a rehearsal dinner. When I was thinking about this, the, the night before Don and I got married, we, her and I and our wedding party, our family, we met at the church. And we, we went over, we practiced what, we, what would take place at the wedding the next day. And then we ate a meal together, just like we would eat a meal together after the wedding on the very next day. And the love and the joy of the wedding day, I tell you, they were already present on the day of the rehearsal dinner. We, we hadn't taken our vows yet, but Don and I were no less committed to each other at the rehearsal dinner than we were on the following day. And so it should be with us. When we think of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I see in this the, the, the analogy of a wedding rehearsal uh, being like the Lord's Supper. It, as an analogy, it breaks down pretty quickly. But it's important and instructive, I think, to notice the way that it breaks down. The analogy breaks down because even though uh, at the wedding rehearsal nobody's made any vows, no one's... No one's keeping any promises yet. But when we think about the Lord's Supper, Jesus, it reminds us that Jesus has already made his vows. He's already kept his commitment. He has already sealed his promises to us by shedding his blood and giving us the Holy Spirit. Today, Jesus could not be any more committed to us than he is right now. He is completely all the way there. And, and he comes to us with that love and in that commitment. He comes to us in the Lord's Supper to remind us of his love and of his, of his commitment to us and to join his body to ours by giving it to us to eat by faith. Just because it's spiritual, it's no less true, is it? Just because we don't chew on the physical body and blood of Christ, it, we do it spiritually, it doesn't make it less true and real, does it? No, it is. It's actually more true and more real because it is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this wonderful spiritual truth is meant to give us the experience of Christ's loving presence again and again and again. And so then as, as his bride that we as his bride, it makes us want to devote ourselves to him all the more, doesn't it? And that's part of what he's doing in coming to us in this way. Let's think about, though, for a moment, how does the Lord's Supper teach us to devote ourselves to Jesus Christ? How does the Lord's Supper itself do that? And we look at verse 17 now. And we discover that the bread doesn't just symbolize to us the physical body of Jesus Christ broken for us, does it? Look at verse 17. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ that is his church, united together in the spirit and in love. 
For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all share of that one bread. Brothers and sisters, you can't feed on the body of Christ by faith and be united to him without at the same time being united to his body, the church. Isn't that true? We're mystically united with Christ and with his people. And the Lord's Supper is about communion, which means it is about sharing what we have in common, not just with Jesus, but with his people, with his body, with his church. It's about being united, not just with Jesus, but being united with the local body of believers who we are submitted to. Well, that's the way that Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 5. That believers, as members of the body of Christ, are submitted to one another. And as the members of the body submit to one another, they do that, as Paul explains in Ephesians. We do it by sharing the gift of Christ that is found in each one of us. By me using the gift that Christ has given me, using it for the spiritual benefit of all of those in the local body that I am united to. And then looking to them to receive from them the gift of Christ that is found in them. The giving and receiving of the gift of Christ is a communion with Christ, is it not? What do I find in each one of you that was spiritually beneficial to me? What do I find? It's not something great that you've done. It's Christ. It's a measure of Christ in you. And so when I have communion with you, I'm having deeper communion with Jesus Christ in the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing that he's done, isn't it? So if you want more of Christ, if you want to share more of his love and his devotion to you, you share yourself with his people in whom he also dwells. When Jesus unites himself to you, what does he do? He obligates himself to you. Right? Jesus unites himself to you and obligates himself to us, but we also need to see that when he obligates himself to us, he is obligating us back to him and also to his body, to his church. And when he feeds you on his body and blood, he shows you that the power to love to love him and the power to love his people, it doesn't come from you. You've got to take Christ into you if you have any hope of doing what he has called you to do. But be sure of this. If he lives in you, he will love his people through you. Christ can't but help to love his people. And if he's in you, he will use you to love his people. I'd like to talk, just for a moment if I can, to those of you today who may have been hurt by Christ's people. I talk to, to some of you, and I, 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 have, I hear stories, and I've heard your stories, and, and I, I know that we're tempted because of these things to, to keep Christ's people at arm's length, right? It's safer back here. <laughs> well, maybe we could be helped by thinking about something together. In a, in a sense, I think this is all of us. I mean, if you've been around Christians, you've been around sinners, and you've bumped into them, they've bumped into you, and it hurt. Right? 
But if you're here today and you're tempted to shrink back from the thought of being committed to Jesus' people, let's see if we can get some help for this. Just by, let, let, let me ask a simple question. Who has been wounded by Christ's people more than him? No one, right? I think of what we hear Jesus saying through the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13. You can hear the voice of Christ speaking. And somebody asks him, what are these wounds within your hands? What are these wounds within your hands? And he answers back, these are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That's what we did to him. Nobody has afflicted more wounding to Jesus Christ than his people, because he died for them. He died for us. And how does he respond to our wounding? He didn't retreat into self-protection, praise God. He drew near to us to suffer from us, to suffer for us, in order to show us the grace, to give us the grace that changes us so that we don't continue to wound. And we we should remember that. Remember that fact, because when Jesus shares his life with you, it includes him sharing with you his sufferings. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 1, that's why he says, I rejoice to share in the sufferings of Christ, and I fill up what is lacking in my body, the sufferings of Christ. And it's, he, you see there, he thinks of it as a great privilege. It is a great privilege for the believer to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Think of that. So Jesus, he, he, and then connect it to what we're talking about here. Jesus doesn't call us to trust to trust entrust ourselves to sinners so much as he calls us to entrust ourselves to him as we share our lives with his people and we should expect to suffer when we do it you should ex- anticipate the suffering to come when you get near to share with the people of god That's actually part of the glory of the body of Christ. Because we get to bear with one another as Christ has done with us. We get to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We get to share grace and give grace like Christ has shown grace to us. That's part of the glory of being in the body of Christ. We get to share in his sufferings. That hurts. It leaves a mark just as it left a mark on him. You're not going to find a local body of Christ where sin is not profoundly present in the people. You're not going to find a local body of Christ where the uh, leaders are exactly what they should be, or the theology is in perfect accord with what you think it should be. You won't find that. And that means there is no better place than the church to find opportunities to imitate Jesus Christ who sacrificed and who suffered and put the interest of others ahead of his own. Right? This is real. This is real. 
Share your life fully with Jesus. Share your life fully with Jesus. Have full communion with Jesus Christ by taking and making opportunities to share your life with this local body of believers if this is where he has placed you. Let me ask another question. Is Jesus Christ a shepherd? Is he a shepherd? Does Jesus Christ, does he call, gift, and set apart men to be shepherds who oversee his local flock? Does Jesus do that? He does that. And that means to have full communion with Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, that we have to take advantage of the spiritual oversight that he provides through the elders of the local church. I'm a little biased about this, but I think right here is as good as any place to do that. But the point being, to have full communion with Jesus Christ, we have, we have to have full communion with his body as he calls us to in his word. And whether you're endeavoring to do that well or you know that you are doing it poor, poorly, again and again and again, we come back to the gospel. The wonder the joy, and the power of the gospel is that we get to share everything with Jesus Christ, not based on the sacrifices that we have made to please him, but based on his once-for-all sacrifice of himself in giving up his body for us. And as he comes to you again and again to give it to you, he is making himself present to you so that his life will more and more become your life. And whether you feel it or not is completely irrelevant. Jesus is present to declare that to you today. And if you you have put your trust in him, and you have fellowship with his body, he has set this table for you. And he shares it with you now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, let us believe your word. Let us know the joy of feasting on Christ, of truly eating and partaking of his life, of his body and his blood, and and knowing by it the powerful presence of Christ with us by his spirit to to do the very thing that he says we must do to have life, which is to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, to, to have him nourishing us, dwelling in us, growing in us, filling us up. And Lord, we pray that, that you would, by the gospel work of both preaching and the, the, also the supper itself, that you would give us this deep and profound mystery this union with Christ near to us, present with us to be handled by us even and we ask, O Lord that by your spirit we might enjoy it and marvel at it in your great grace and we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen That clock back there is not working.
Well, we're going to stand just now and sing together uh, for.